When I was a kid, I remember being read Aesop's fables at home and at school. These stories were to teach children valuable lessons and morals that we should carry with us into the world. There is a quote from The Ass, the Fox, and the Lion that has always stuck with me. Betray a friend and you'll often find that you have ruined yourself. As children, we learn these lessons through fanciful stories. But as adults, if we forget what these tales warn us of, we will have to relearn them in a much harsher manner. I'm Leslie. I'm Holly. And we would be dead. I know. It's it's cute. It's getting there. Yeah. Well, super cute's going to come second yeah. to super functional. So For right sure. now, yeah, we're, we're going to make it work. <laughs> so if we sound a little different, which I don't think we will, but if we do, it's because we're why. still working on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but we're at our little desks. Yeah. We're so official. We're working. It's Love great. Love it. So this week, you guys, we have a Leslie episode. Yay! <laughs> I'm so excited. I get to sit. You do. Yeah. <laughs> And I only gave you, like, one piece. Yeah, you gave me, like, nothing either. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like I don't have anything to do researching Kurt Cobain and working simultaneously on our recently announced brand new additional podcast series that we just named. We call it uh, Mark is Missing. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yes. On the disappearance. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. You know. We I talked about know. it. And that's on the disappearance of Mark Heimbaugh. So that's a lot of, that's like a crazy amount of work. Mm-hmm. So Leslie was kind enough to take the reins this week. Yes. And I'm so excited to hear what she has in store for us. I mean, last week she said she could bite a dick off. So we all know me know that you mean business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. You're not messing around. If I had to, though. <laughs> had I, to. I feel or like I could. you were mad enough. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Ugh, I hope I so never have to do that. <laughs> I can't imagine the situation where you're like, well, here it is. It's the, this is when I have to do it. I mean, I can, but I don't want to. <laughs> that's that's the problem. Yeah, let's just. I don't want any part of that. Anyway, and for those of you who don't live in our area, um, Leslie and I are coming to you this week from under a giant, freezing, blustery mountain of snow. So much snow. So much snow. I don't know if you guys have experienced the kind of dry, chapped, wind-burned skin that mm-hmm. hours outside shoveling, or in my case, walking the dog, can cause. Mm-hmm. I was shoveling. I do all the other yard work, so. I love to shovel, shovel, so it's fine. I don't like to shovel, but I do like like mowing the lawn and all the other stuff. Okay. So I do all of that. But um, all of this stuff is just <laughs> hell on your face. Everything is so dry and red, it's hateful. Yes. So please, fiends. Do us a favor and give us the gift of the healing balm of validation. Validation. Ooh. Bring that back every week. (laughs) (laughs) How can you do that? Well, I'm so glad you asked. 
you can head on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. That and lists. People love a list, Mm -hmm. and I have yet to figure out how to get on one. So if you guys know how, please tell me. Yeah, let us know. Yeah. Uh, And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can support us over on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you will get access to lots of extra content like our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, our patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies, and some special mini-sodes. You'll also get, and I hope to do more of these, some Zoom meetups in the future. We've done them uh, before any of our live Campfire Story events, so you can talk to us face-to-face. You'll get special offers in our merch store, the chance to vote on topics for future episodes, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is too much for you, you can simply share anything on our social media feed to your social media feed, post about your favorite episode, put a screenshot in your Instagram story, tell us when you're listening, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell the teen that walks around your neighborhood holding a cell phone all the time for seemingly no reason. I think we all have one of those. What's their name? Oh, looking at that cell phone, walking around by themselves. I feel like that's going to be a Chad. Chad, yeah. Well, then you're Sabrina. We'll put them both in there. Yeah, Chad and Sabrina. Chad and Sabrina. They're always out there. I know. What are they doing? But not together. No, no, they're together, but looking at their goddamn cell phone. Well, of course. Look at each other. They're probably texting each other. Probably. Snapchatting. They're Snapchatting. They're Snapchatting. Barrett, you know how bad that Snapchat is. Mm -mm. Chad and Sabrina. (laughs) Well, then you're friends. (laughs) And Chad and Sabrina can become fiends, and we can all hang out together. We can ask him in person. Yeah. As adults, we could grill him on this. Yeah. Stop Snapchatting. I know. They're like, because they're teens, right? So it's Obviously, safe for us, yes. like, them to stop sure. the strangers. I mean, teens are way scarier than adults, but yes. They are. We're goddamn youths. <laughs> no. I was not a scary teen. I wasn't either. No, I was no. not even a little bit intimidating. I was scared of teens when I was a teen. Yes, I've always been scared of teens. Yeah. Yeah, that tracks. Anyway, (laughs) next week also marks our 100th episode. I would love to celebrate with everybody. So maybe we'll be able to find a a way to like Instagram live or open a Zoom or something so we can kind of have a toast with everybody. Yeah. I think that would be fun. We haven't planned anything yet, but I just was thinking about it and thought like, yeah, we should share this moment with everybody. Mm -hmm. That'd be really fun. So yeah, we made it to 100. Everybody deserves a toast. We're really doing the damn thing. I'm so proud of We Would Be Dead. I'm proud of the work. I'm proud of the community. We are the island of misfit toys I always wanted. Aww. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's all I have for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before I throw it back over to you? Uh, I was really busy writing an episode this week, so I don't have any news. All right, then. On with the show. On December 3rd, 2016, at 2.45 in the morning, an Uber driver was driving on a bridge over Shark River in Belmar, New Jersey, and spotted an abandoned vehicle on the side of the road about halfway across the bridge. The driver, choosing to stay anonymous, called 911 to report the vehicle. And then pretend like it's like dispatch, right? Right, right. (laughs) Like we have an actual recording. We can do that if we want yeah. to. We just have it. We've chosen not to. It's okay. Do you guys want to hear 911 calls? Yeah. I guess you can tell us. The 911 dispatcher asked the driver, what's the emergency? To which the driver replies, I don't know that it's an emergency, but there is an abandoned car on the side of the road on the bridge. The dispatcher had the driver clarify which bridge and what side of the car was on. 
He says it's on the Belmar Route 35 bridge that goes over Shark River, and the car is more on the Neptune City side, going towards Belmar. He couldn't be sure that no one was in the car. Maybe they were laying back or bending over, but the car was definitely off. He says he mainly called because it was late and he was afraid other cars might not see it as they crossed the bridge. A squad car is then sent out to investigate. So just like a side note here, there's um, on the base of the bridge, there's a popular bar in Neptune City called the Headliner. Oh. And so at this point in time, that's probably like one reason why the Uber driver was even out driving around. Okay. But the bridge could also be... There might have been a period of time where this bridge, like, might not have had a lot of traffic, but then some traffic might be coming out because everyone's coming out of the bar. Yeah. But also, like, have you ever called for a car on the side of the road? Like, dispatch? Be like, 9-1, there's a car on the side of the road? No. No. Isn't that? I mean, that's a real, real small town thing to do. It is. Because Mm -hmm. on a major highway or something, people break down all the time, Mm -hmm. and it's not, I mean, I'm a crazy person and because we've done so much of this I will frequently be like somebody's dead right but I know I'm being irrational Mm -hmm. so no but I guess in a small town when you know most of the cars and you know Mm -hmm. what things look like you might you you might might be like oh this is irregular and you might want to call so um and also it is on a bridge you know which that's dangerous so there's a river below it sure um, so I did actually look this up, though. Um, psychologists say that our brains see an abandoned car and try to reason out why it's there. Like, it broke down, ran out of gas. Maybe somebody's taking a pee break or they're making a phone call. Oh, we always look for a why. Yeah. We always connect dots in our mm-hmm. head. That's just so how we're either wired. Way, yeah, so either way, we just think that it, it's being handled. It's fine. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. Um, or if there is an issue, we don't call because, like, we might think, well, I don't want to get anyone in trouble, like, maybe for leaving the their car there or something. bystander effect, too, where you're yeah. like, somebody else will do it. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't mm. want them to be mad at me. Well, right. we'll cover, probably in a patron or something, we'll cover Kitty Genovese, which is, mm-hmm. like, the prime example of that. Okay. But, yeah, so I just figured, I was like, this Uber driver, not that this is actually really important to this case. No, but it is. I figured that this Uber driver definitely called because of that bar that was open and people are might have been drinking and they're coming out. Right. He was just nervous. And you're nervous. Like, yeah. what if that's somebody drunk? What if mm-hmm. they, like, wandered off into yeah. the That or just or that any car is going to hit it. And yeah. that, that's what he was mm-hmm. more concerned about. Yeah. All right. So that was at 2.45 a.m. At 2.53 a.m., a Neptune Township police officer pulls up behind the gray 1994 Oldsmobile. He gets out of his car, walks up to the car, shines a flashlight inside, and finds it empty with the door unlocked and keys in the ignition. Ooh, I don't like that. The police officer heads back to his car and radios dispatch to check who the car is registered to and to contact the owner, hoping they will answer and tell them to come pick up their car before it gets towed. Yeah. It's like best case scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Hey, you just like left your car up here. Can you come back and get it? Mm -hmm. Maybe send somebody who isn't drunk to drive your car home. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. The Neptune Township Police Department quickly learns that the car belongs to 96-year-old Lillian Stern. (laughs) She was in the bar. Yeah. So fucked up. (laughs) Silver alerts out. (laughs) I'm sorry. Silver alert always makes me chuckle a little bit because, like, you chose silver for for the old people. Yeah. I know. I can't. I know. So uh, Lillian Stern has been a lifelong Neptune City local, so she's been around there forever. Okay. However, Lillian says that she gave the car to her granddaughter, 19-year-old Sarah Stern, and she is the one who typically drives it. That makes more sense. Unfortunately, Lillian doesn't know where Sarah is. She hasn't been able to get a hold of her all day. Oh, no. 
The police officer on site decides that, for some reason, nothing looks suspicious and calls a tow company to take the car away. This does take a little while to happen, but I don't know why they did that. That probably wasn't super smart. He also tells dispatch to send police over to the Stern house to see what's going on. (sighs) Yeah, I don't know why they... Like, I would have thought they would have kept that car there or waited for more people to come to check it. Yeah. I don't know. And maybe it. maybe some people did. And I will say this now, that doesn't really come back into play other than, like, they might have been able to get some more information right. had they just spent a little bit more time with like, this car. footprints near the car? Yeah. Was there, you know, mm-hmm. any kind of evidence that moving the car would have disturbed? That's right. just what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the police are trying to get in touch with Sarah on her cell phone but aren't having any luck. Sarah Stern's dad, Michael Stern, is actually in Disney World at the moment, in the one in Florida, in case people are World, not land. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He's on vacation with his girlfriend, Christine. The police get Michael's cell and call him. Around 3 a.m., Michael wakes up and answers a call coming from the Monmouth County Sheriff's Department. The dispatcher asks if he knows anything about an old gray Oldsmobile. Michael says, yeah, that's my daughter's car. She's the one that drives it. And then they just hang up the phone. <gasps> no. They don't say, mm-hmm. like, we found it abandoned on the side of a bridge. They said nothing else. They just oh, hung up the no. phone. Oh, bad policing. So Michael, who's obviously still, like, in a daze from waking up, wonders if he's just being pranked and immediately calls the numbers back but gets a voicemail stating the station's hours and instructions to call back or leave a message. And at this point, he knows that it's not a prank but he doesn't have any other information and no one's picking up to why would you be pranked like that right that's a weird prank well but it's just he just woke up from a daze and he's just like what and he just hung up they're like do you know whose car this is you bye bye what a weird it's like is your refrigerator running bye (laughs) (laughs) you forgot the punchline it's fine okay Michael then calls his nephew, who is a first responder in Neptune City, and hopes that he can gather some more information. While Michael waits to hear back from his nephew, he thinks back to the last time he heard from Sarah. At 10.30 p.m. the night before, on Friday, Michael had gotten a call from his mother, Lillian Stern, who says that she hadn't heard from Sarah all day. Lillian had gotten out of surgery for something a few weeks prior and was staying at her daughter's house uh, in Belmar, uh, which is Michael's sister. Lillian was concerned because she was keeping daily contact with Sarah, especially while Michael was away on vacation. Michael also had not heard from her, but he reassured his mother that it's Friday night. She's probably just out with her friends, or maybe her phone died at the moment. Once it's charged, she'll check in or first thing in the morning, you know. He also tried to uh, message Sarah, but she also didn't get back to her. But again, it's like late at this point, so he's like, I don't know. would be panicking but then he, again, he is this is but okay. again this is all happening within like maybe two three minutes right i just now. can't imagine a mentality where i will ever be like my daughter who still lives under one of our roofs hasn't been home all night and that's fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that's the thing he doesn't know if she hasn't been home she just like didn't respond yet and it's true, a saturday true, true. and he's in florida she's oh at that's home. right he's in florida yeah so yeah the last time michael would have talked to her was probably either that morning or the day before and okay. they were just texting like a little bit about their right. Um, he's in Florida, so that he's does, in Florida. They're I on forgot vacation. that for a minute. Yeah, and they were texting about uh, like Disney specifically. He was sending her mm. photos, and she was commenting, and it was very sweet. That's cute. So now, after all of this, Michael is starting to think like 
something might be wrong, right? Of course. Ten minutes later, Michael hears back from his nephew who tells him that they found Sarah's car on the bridge, but Sarah wasn't in it, and they don't know where she is. And Michael just begins to think the worst. He and Christine pack up, jump in the car, and drove 16 hours home. (gasps) They drove! Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Christine drove while Michael pretty much stayed on the phone constantly trying to get updates and call everyone he knew that might have answers for Sarah's whereabouts. They have a ton of family, too, that live in that area. They're, like, local. They're a local family. So they have, like, aunts, uncles, cousins, like, tons of people and neighbors that they actually know very well that they can call. He continued sending texts to Sarah, hoping she would answer just one of them. So while Michael is driving home, the police arrive at the Stern household. There are some lights on, the back door is open, and after making their presence known, they enter. This case is pretty widely covered, but there is, like, footage of everything. It's from 2016, so you could see actual video footage. Uh, we love a modern case. Mm-hmm. So you can see the body cam footage of them entering her house. It's definitely a lived-in home. It's not, like, super dirty or anything. It's just cluttered. Nothing looks out of place or, like, there's been a struggle. They find that the Stearns family dog is locked in his crate, though. <gasps> uh, and he's not, like, a puppy, too. He's, he's like, he's an older dog, definitely several years. But he's been in there years. for a while, then. And he's, maybe, I mean, I don't know, you okay. know. In the body cam footage, you see, this is really cute, The one of the officers grabs a treat. There's this cute little cookie, uh, doggy cookie jar, yeah. and he grabs it, and he's just, like, talking a little doggy voice. He's like, hello, treat for the doggy. <laughs> it's really cute. It's really cute. I love that. <laughs> and the, the dog okay, is right? real. He's real chill. He's okay. fine. Yep. Dog is fine this entire they, time. Our listeners need to know yes. that. But, yeah, the police officers did think right away, like, that's weird that the dog is in the crate. There's really no reason for it because he's super well-behaved, too, and he's older. But some people crate their dogs. Some dogs do stay in their crates Mm -hmm. all the time. Like, when people are not home, they're always in their crate. Right, right. I don't crate train, so I don't really know much. Right, but um, they would have thought, like, maybe they would have just had the gate open in case he just wanted to go in and out type of thing. Okay. They checked the whole house, and Sarah's not there, though they did find her wallet with her license, American and Canadian cash, credit. Oh, and, and Canadian. hmm Credit and debit cards, her passport, and a suitcase that looked more like it was unpacked than being packed. Strange that she would have any of, like, she wouldn't have any of those items with her, like, especially her wallet or, like, with her license, yeah. right? Yeah. So they keep especially track of that. Especially if she had been at a bar. You need that stuff. Right, if she had been at the bar, right? Okay, that's right. Yeah, I just mentioned that there is a bar at the base, and that's why, like, cars, people might have been leaving, and that's why that car being there might have been dangerous. But even if you're you're driving, you need Mm -hmm. your driver's license. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Got it. On the road, Michael calls his neighbor, Robin Draper, to see if she has seen Sarah and to let her know what had happened. Robin is a very close friend of the family, and she has twins, Carly and Sam, who are a few years younger than Sarah. Uh, Robin is like a second mother to Sarah. Aww, okay. The police talk to Robin and ask her what she thought Sarah's demeanor has been like because, again, there's a car on the side of the road, the keys are in it, she's missing. Right. And it's not just on the side of the road, it's on a bridge and straight down is a river. Oh, no, yeah. Mm-hmm. And also none of her belongings are with her. Oh, my God. Yeah, that equals like we mm-hmm. think she jumped off. So Robin says that she has been depressed. They asked if she thinks she's suicidal, but Robin says she just doesn't know if it's that far. Right. Then Robin tells the police that her last conversation with Sarah was earlier that day when Sarah 
asked if she could drop off a box of some of her things. She said, of course. Sarah came by her house with her friend Leah McAtasney and dropped the items off with her daughter, Carly. Next, the police headed over to 19-year-old Liam's house. Liam said he hadn't seen Sarah since late afternoon. They hung out and got food, and then he went to work, and that was it. And then the police asked him, because, you know, it's super early in the morning, so they were like, if you remember anything else, like, yeah. let us know, stay in contact with us. Yeah, plus he's sometimes when the cops are like, you're faced with the cops, your brain is going to blank out a little bit. Exactly. And so far, Liam is the last person that may have seen her, too. Michael Stern calls his extended family, Sarah's aunt and cousins. Everyone is now alerted to what's going on. Some of the cousins drive down to the bridge where Sarah's car was to see if they could find any kind of evidence of where she might be. I thought that was like— Good cousins. I know. It was just these two girls. They're like college age, and they were just like, we just like drove straight down there just to see what was going on. Ugh. About an hour or two has gone by at this point, and 30 to 40 of Sarah and Michael's friends and family have arrived at the Stern house. Wow, 30 to 40. That's a lot. Everyone's mind is drifting to the same thought. Did Sarah jump off the bridge? Around 5 a.m., the state police and sheriff's department at the bridge are investigating. Cadaver dogs are sniffing the waters and along the river. Divers are combing through the waters. And other devices are being used to locate Sarah if she did, in fact, jump, which at this point, those on the scene felt pretty confident that this might have been the case. That or like she was just abducted. Yeah. Weird. The trouble is, if she did jump, no one knows what time it occurred. And depending on the current, her body could already be in or near the Atlantic Ocean. That's where the Shark River ends up going out to. Yeah, it's just an inlet there, too, Mm -hmm. where the bridge is. Exactly. This meant that their search area was pretty huge, and the odds of finding Sarah's body, if even in the water, was becoming less likely by the minute. Oh, yeah. Another sad piece to include here is that many of those on the local foisters who were looking for Sarah knew exactly who she was and who her father was, one of which was her neighbor two doors down. Aww. He said that um, he was, like, searching for—he was, like, an hour into the search, and somebody came by, and they were like, do you know who you're looking for yet? <gasps> Because they hadn't just said, they were like, we're just looking for a body, like anybody. Oh, no. Let us know. And so he was just like, no, I actually don't know. They didn't say. And he was like, it's Sarah Stern. And his heart just like dropped. Oh, my God. I hate that. So, again, at this point, only a few hours in, all the investigators had to go on was either a possible suicide or she just abandoned her car and walked away or she was abducted. But there's literally no evidence of anything. Ugh. The idea of either did not sit well with Sarah's friends and family and even some of the local police, community officials, and those on search and rescue teams that knew her. Neptune City is a close-knit community. Everyone knew Sarah. Her father owned and operated a local bookstore, and she was active in her community. Those close to her felt like if she were to run away, she would have had mentioned something to someone, or worse, if she did kill herself, wouldn't there have been more signs? Any other possible reason for Sarah's disappearance wouldn't make sense in this sweet little town. So before I talk more about who Sarah was and if suicide or running away could have been an option, I'd like Holly to tell us a bit more about Neptune City and uh, what kind of place did Sarah grow up in? Sure. Uh, Well, Neptune City is a borough in Monmouth County, New Jersey. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the geography of the great state of New Jersey, (laughs) Monmouth County is in about the center of the S that is New Jersey, on the Atlantic Ocean side. If you can't picture the state of New Jersey either because you don't know what states look like or you have a head injury, 
if you're American. <laughs> or if you're from another country and you don't know, and then you, you have every excuse and it's fine. Right. Um, New Jersey looks like that S that you, if you grew up in the 90s, you would draw on your notebook yes. that's made with like a series of lines that you then connect. Mm-hmm. It looks like that. Um, so it would be on the side with the Atlantic Ocean. And um, if you want to know where Leslie and I live, it's um, on the tail connected to the bottom of that S. All the way to the bottom. We're on the bottom of the S. Yes. <laughs> if there is a tail on the bottom of that S, that's where Leslie and I live. Yeah. <laughs> Not even on the main part. No. <laughs> anyway, Neptune City borders the coastal tourist towns of Avon by the Sea uh, and Bradley Beach. Um, and it occupies less than a square mile of land. Mm. It's really tiny. It has a population of approximately 4,800 people as of the 2010 census, which um, the popula- population was also in decline. In years past, it was greater than that, but it had been decreasing for a while because the town, we'll get to that in a second, was kind of in decline. Um, the bordering cities of Bradley Beach and Avon-by-the-Sea uh, make a population jump from less to 5,000 in the fall, winter, and spring to as many as 30,000 people in the summer. Right. And you and I totally understand this lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's barren in the off-season, and then all of a sudden there's a shit ton of people. So that's what the main communities in that area are dealing with. But Neptune is, like, right off of these coastal towns, like behind it, if you will. Mm-hmm. So Neptune City used to house mostly year-round residents, though as of 2011 – it had begun to shift into the rental property mm. range, which you and I will also recognize this phenomenon as we both live on towns that are like kind of adjacent to major coastal towns. And you just watch mm-hmm. the rentals pop up. Yep. You watch the year-round people slowly leave mm-hmm. and the rental signs pop up. So that's what's happening here. And this is happening a lot in the state of New Jersey, actually. Year-round residential areas quickly become ghost towns because of this phenomenon. And, and it makes it harder, too, for young people it to It does. Now we're going to get there. Okay. Absolutely. And we did talk about this phenomenon at length in our episode on Tyler Hadley mm-hmm. when we talked about Port St. Lucie, Florida. So this is a very similar kind of thing. Also, the cost of living in Neptune City is about 8% higher than the national average. So it's not cheap to live there. Another thing that can force out the middle class. Mm-hmm. So your residents of this, your full-time residents can't really afford to live there because jobs do not exist as much in the off-season, rentals are harder to come by, and the cost of living is very high. So um, the city also houses just one school. There's one school in Neptune, and mm-hmm. if you're not, it's a K through 8. So then in high school, you have to go to another district school. Mm-hmm. And there are only roughly 275 students total in their K through 8 school. Mm. which, again, is a lot like the school district my kids go to. So there's, you know, Stone Harbor and Avalon probably have 300 students total. Right. So it's a very small year-round community. 40% of Neptune City's population is also comprised of non-families, which means in all signs point to the fact that there really aren't a lot of kids there. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with a lot of, like, people who are retired or younger couples and then, like, some families. So... Not a lot of other kids to hang out with either. Right. The crime rate in Neptune is relatively low. And with the demolition of a large decomposing hotel at the, like, center of town, which all the locals blamed on, like, well, all the crime happens there. That's where the prostitutes Mm -hmm. and the drug people go. (laughs) Their words, not mine. (laughs) Um, When they demolished that hotel, the crime rate did kind of go down. Mm -hmm. It did kind of, like, help out. Um, But if you Google Neptune City crime rate, you'll get... The story Leslie's talking about today, and then also the story of a banker who died during a robbery in the late 20s. Oh, my gosh. And that's it. That's it, yeah. <laughs> That's it. There are no other stories. So 
Also, if you look up things to do in Neptune City, New Jersey, you will get some lists. There's always a list. But none of them will include anything that is actually in the city limits of Neptune, New Jersey, because mm. it borders these big shore towns. One of the first responses when you Google that is also a list of things to do on the planet Neptune. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> and okay. I had to tell you what they are because they're really funny. Thank you. They are listed as ice sculpting. Okay. Become an ice wizard or an ice fairy when training with magical ice creatures of Neptune. Oh. Obviously. Mine ice crystals. Okay. Go ice climbing. Go weather watching. Play in the snow inside. Somebody wrote that and it makes me so happy that I had to share it with everybody else. I love that. Isn't that great? Okay. But back to Neptune City, New Jersey. If you're looking for a way to pass the time out of your home while you're there, you're going to have to hop in the car and head to one of the neighboring shore towns which is both good and bad news for local youths who clearly aren't spending their time in a bar or planning out their landscaping. Mm -hmm. In the summer, there would be tons of stuff going on pretty close by, but in the winter, spring, and fall, you're pretty stuck. Mm -hmm. The seasonality of coastal towns uh, is slowly bleeding into the mainland, which makes it a lot harder for the youth in the area to find constructive things to do with their time. And as I said in the Tyler Hadley episode, when you have a lot of bored youths, they're not going to stay bored. They're going to find something to do. You're probably not going to like what they find to do. Right. There is a community center. They mm-hmm. have a game room. They do. And a TV room. Yeah. So, yeah, there's also four local parks, four, and two shopping centers, mm-hmm. which were recently renovated. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because it is a town with, with money. There's probably like an Applebee's there or something. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I didn't look, so maybe not. Uh, And while the community center exists, events are kind of few and far between. I looked at the schedule on Facebook, and it was, like, pretty vacant. Right. Um, Neptune City does have its fair share of scenic areas as well. Again, this is a lot like Port St. Lucie. Mm -hmm. It's situated on the Shark River, and there are plenty of lovely views and hiking trails. But the Shark River isn't a river in the sense that, like, the Delaware or the Mississippi are rivers. It's more of a tidal basin that feeds into an inlet than then empties into the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty and houses one of the older drawbridges in the area, which is the bridge we're talking about today. Well, it's next to it. Mm -hmm. The Route 35 Shark River Bridge connects the neighboring communities of Avon-by-the-Sea and Belmar, which get a considerable amount of traffic in the summertime. Mm -hmm. This was an issue with the drawbridge when it was just a drawbridge. There used to be a really low-to-the-ground drawbridge, and there was a schedule where it would open every hour on the hour. Mm. Can you imagine? Every hour. So rough. But also by appointment. So every hour it would open no matter what. And then whenever a boat was passing, it also opened. My which God. in the summer, when you're going short town it's to short town, that is so much traffic. It must have created a nightmare of traffic. Which is why later on a multi-lane fixed bridge was constructed right next to it. Mm-hmm. So there's a big giant bridge that's really tall and boats can go underneath uh, to handle traffic. The drawbridge, which was built in 1937, is still operational, actually, and underwent considerable renovations in 2014. But the adjacent fixed crossing bridge handles most of the car traffic that travels from shore town to shore town. Uh, So, Leslie, for our reference, it's like the Stone Harbor Bridge, basically. Okay. When you're jumping from, like, island to mainland and stuff, Mm -hmm. it's like a little one. Or, like, North Wildwood, that way. If you get that reference if you're us and, like, I don't know, 10 other people that listen. <laughs> sorry, everyone else. That doesn't make sense, too. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> people travel here, though. They might That's know. true. You might know. If not, look it up. You could yeah. see our lovely towns. 
but that would be like if they put also another great big bridge next to the little tiny bridge in Stone Harbor, which made me think like, boy, I sure wish they did that. It's like on the Garden State Parkway, the um, at twenty nine, they just did that. Yeah, bridge. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it mm-hmm. takes care of all your traffic, which yeah. is what they did. <laughs> anyway, and it cuts down on delays. <laughs> yeah. I don't know which bridge this car is on, if it's on the little tiny drawbridge or like the it big bridge. It looks like it's on the bigger from the, okay. from the pictures. That's why I yeah. mentioned both very clearly because yes, I wasn't thank you. sure. I think it's definitely the bigger one okay. because it's also a multi-lane the, the, okay, and there's yes. a median in the – Yes, so that's the bigger bridge. So it's lane traffic on each side and then there's a median. That's the fixed lane. Okay. The, the fixed height bridge because yep. the drawbridge is – Tiny. Which means that this bridge is also, again, higher. Yes. So if you don't have – if it's not a drawbridge and there's boats going, going underneath, yes. it's pretty It's a high, high. bridge. Absolutely. Yeah. It's tall. In closing, <laughs> I don't usually get these. This is really funny to me. <laughs> In closing. <laughs> I found a Yelp review of the city written by a local. <laughs> okay. Great. <laughs> Which I think is a really funny thing to do. Like, mm, you know what I'm going to do because I have some free time? Yeah. Yelp review my like hometown. <laughs> In all the towns I've written about on this podcast, this is the only time I've come across this. Okay. So just to give you guys a sense of the town we're dealing with, quote, as someone who had grown up in this small community and who still has family that resides here, I feel I can offer an honest and informed uh, view of the town. Good for you. It is not uncommon for people who grow up in Neptune City to reside here in their adult lives. So lots of family. They grow up. They never leave. Makes perfect sense. Many residents take pride in the town and become involved in the community and its institutions. That means people get jobs and they never leave. There's also a heavy rental presence. The elementary school is solid, the police involved, and the taxes are reasonable by New Jersey standards. (laughs) Our taxes are terrible. And the town's governing body has done a wonderful job of trying to improve the town's image and appearance. The two major shopping centers have undergone dramatic upgrades, and the town has a community center that caters to the needs of the citizens. Anyone thinking of residing in town should look to the southern part by the river or the western part of town. These areas are by far the more attractive parts. However, with the good comes the bad. The eastern part of town is where the old commercial business center lies, and the area for the most part is a dump. I know. <laughs> I love the honesty. I know. this. That's why I read this. Although the borough has redevelopment plans in place for this area, the present economy will put that on hold for a few years. <laughs> this person has this opinions. This is like my dad I writing this. And it gets a little um, shady soon, and know that these are not words I wrote. Within the last two years, the old hotel in this blighted area was demolished to the relief of many surrounding residents. It served to house drug users, prostitution, illegals—hate that word, hate the word prostitution too—and crime. Police were always responding to calls at this location, and robberies of nearby homes were not uncommon. I still remember being about 13 and having a stranger approach a friend and I as to where he could buy drugs— or my neighbor having her purse snatched as she tried to enter her home. Eh! <laughs> Definitely written by a boomer. <laughs> yep. Bad area. The eastern part is! Yeah. Exclamation point. Oh, no. I know. Another concern is that you have to send your kids to an Abbott District High School in Neptune. These are school districts designated by the state as poor districts, where student spending is three times the state average per pupil to correct any discrepancies in learning. And the end results are that it yields no results. You'd be better off considering other educational alternatives. Thank you. Then that's what this person had to say. They ended with that? That's how they ended? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. And then they were done. Man. So the last thing they left you on on nothing. And then they were like, love this person, (laughs) whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah, that's all they said. 
Um, okay. And it, the last thing I'll leave you with is that um, the bridge over the Shark River, it says it's over the Shark River, which I think gives people a false image of it because mm-hmm. it is over like, it's right by the ocean. It's just an inlet. It goes right to the ocean where mm-hmm. this bridge is. So you're not really getting much river mm-hmm. because if you look up the Shark River, it is shallow. It's mm-hmm. like deepest parts are maybe in the 20-some foot range, That the very deepest. And a lot of it is more like a creek. It's like kind of shallow and meandering, but the inlet has an extremely dangerous current and it's deep. So so much so that you like cannot swim in it. You're not allowed. There's right. no like being out of a boat because you will get sucked into the ocean and die. Mm-hmm. So if you were to jump off of this very high bridge into mm-hmm. this inlet, which goes immediately into the ocean, you would not survive that at all. Right. So the things that you have to take into consideration too when somebody jumps off or is thrown off or anything, yeah. if you enter in this body of water, it's whether or not one – you inhale the water as you go in, which sure. means that you will just you will your lungs will fill with water, you'll and then sink. you're heavy and you'll sink. Um, if you don't inhale, then you're more likely to float. And then different temperatures in the water, right? Um, and again, like with your weight differences, so that's going to you know depend depending on that. It will like the timing of when you might enter the ocean. Yeah, like, get but regardless the of ocean. how you hit that water, even if you're living and you dive into it from a mm-hmm. boat. You're you're probably not going to come out. It's yeah. it's a very difficult area with an extremely mm-hmm. strong current that immediately opens out to open water. Yeah. And once you're out there, like there's nothing yeah. for you, and you're pretty much done. Yeah. So it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And they do call it Shark River, but there are no sharks there. Just so you. Yeah. Know. They also used to call it like Shack River and a bunch yeah. of other things because it wandered through a section of town where there was like um, impoverished people who used to hang out on the riverbanks and like take naps. So it has a lot of weird nicknames and stuff. <laughs> now I have just beyond the river bend. <laughs> oh, my. Right. Well, thank you, Holly. You're welcome. So before we get any further into the story, I think it's important here for us to get to know Sarah a bit more. Please. It's going to help us understand why some of the leads the investigators get later on make some sense. Sarah Lee Stern was born on March 24, 1997, in Belmar, New Jersey, to parents Michael and Carla Stern. Her father calls her a miracle child. Carla wasn't supposed to be able to have children, but then Sarah came along. She was their only child, and she was beautiful. She had long, dark, thick hair, olive skin tone, and was athletically fit. The neighborhood Sarah grew up in was packed with kids and friendly neighbors, her mother, Carla, was very close to Robin Draper, and the two raised their children together. Well, she is lucky. If she grew up in Neptune City and there yeah. was a lot of kids, she, like, grew up They were just, yeah, their their neighborhood, and you can see a picture of um, her neighborhood. It just, it looks like a homey town. Like, this is clearly where people yeah. live and they stay. And perhaps that was one of those things where it was, like, very residential and then slowly pulled back from that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Robin's twins, Carly and Sam, looked up to Sarah and saw her as an older sister. In an interview with Dateline, Sam Draper said that if he ever needed someone to play catch with, he could always rely on Sarah to play with him. Aww. All the kids on the street got along and hung out every every day that they could. They called themselves the gang, and there was only about a six-year gap between them, which was kind of nice. Gang. I know. How cute is <laughs> that? That is cute. And there are really cute pictures of them hanging out in the summertime as little kids, so I'll put up one. Yeah. But it's, like, really sweet. Aw. Sarah attended Neptune City High School, where she joined the swim team for just her freshman year and played varsity softball all four years. 
Her summers were filled with trips to the beach, hanging with friends, and working at a local restaurant. Sarah's favorite color is purple. Her favorite snack is anything with Nutella. She loved going to Disney. She liked Harry Potter, so I like her. Yeah. Nutella's great. So is Harry Potter. Yeah. And her favorite genre was science fiction and fantasy. During her freshman year at just 15 years old, Sarah's mother died after a long struggle with cancer. Oh, that's a hard time to lose your mom. I know. I know. This hit Sarah really hard, but to her credit, she didn't isolate herself. Instead, she reached out for support and accepted any that was offered. Sarah became closer to her grandmother, Lillian Stern, and really bonded with their family dog, Buddy. So that's the dog they that's find. The dog, okay. Yeah. In interviews, Michael and Sarah's friends are always quick to say that Buddy was Sarah's best friend and he was her dog. Oh, Buddy. Got to find a picture of Buddy. I know. So cute. He's cute. Sarah also grew closer to classmates Leah McCatastney, his twin brother Seamus, and their friend Preston Taylor. Ooh, Liam um, and Seamus. That is an Irish family. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm just going to say this because it's I, – I looked several times, and I know that I chose Seamus, but I kept hearing people say Sean, like, in other interviews, but then I also heard Seamus. So I'm just going to say both because this other Sean and Shane, like, I kept hearing it, and I just didn't know if people – we're confusing his name. Weird. But I'm pretty sure. Well, Seamus is, I guess, upon glance, you could think it was Sean because the maybe, beginning is spelled. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe he went by a different name. Maybe. Maybe he didn't want to be called. I don't know. But I remember looking it up and being like, here's their family line. <laughs> That's so interesting. So I'm just going to say it because I feel like and if you heard any other accounts and you're like, who's Seamus? I feel like maybe they called him Sean or Shane at some point. Got it. Brother. Yeah, but he's his twin brother, and he— Twin brother. He's his twin brother. Interesting. Looks just like him. That's how um, twins do a lot of the time. Sometimes, sometimes. Not all the time. Yeah, Um, but he has—he's not important in the story, so it's fine. (laughs) But he has to look like this guy forever. He does. He does. Which might not be great, just saying. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. Well, we don't know why. We don't know why. But you, like, remember what happened to Ted Bundy's brother? He, like, lives in a trailer and doesn't cut his nails anymore. Yeah. It's upsetting. So Sarah had known these kids her whole life but really grew close in middle school and high school. She was the closest with Liam, but she did go to junior prom with Preston. Okay. In school, Sarah's art teachers took her under their wing in hopes of helping her cope through the arts. Within a year, Sarah's talents in drawing, sculpture, painting, and photography really started to take shape. Michael, her father, says he had no idea where it came from. She was just a natural at whatever medium she tried, especially photography and drawing with watercolors and pencils. I think she had a cousin that also did, like, wedding photography, and she would, like, shadow her sometimes. Oh, that's cool. Over the course of high school, Sarah grew an interest in television production, social media, content creation, and graphic design. She looked up to YouTube vloggers and Instagram personalities like Jenna Marbles. I loved Jenna I Marbles. And then she got canceled so hard. I know. But Apparently this was, she was Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was – she said something. I don't – I don't – I only love the handful yeah. of videos I saw. I did not watch all of them all I know, the time. I don't, so I, I don't know fully what happened. I don't know if it was one of those like she just – All I know is got she got deeply ashamed and then said like I can't I'm do out. this anymore. Goodbye. Yeah. Also, no shame in living in a trailer. I did not mean that. Ted – Bundy's brother lives in, like, a pop-up trailer, like oh. the kind that goes on the back of a car 
and then you go on vacation and you're in it for a couple days. Oh, have you just been sitting on that guilt yes. this whole time? I've been feeling really badly because I'm like, that's not a bad thing. Like some of them are lovely. And it's a nice, affordable way to live. But like, that's not what I meant. Okay. <laughs> so for anyone else not able to listen to the rest of my story because you were mad at Holly. I didn't mean on. that. All right. So other the other YouTubers she watched, uh, so besides Jenna Marbles, was Hannah Hart and Grace Helbig. Oh, I love them. She was active within these communities as well. She didn't just enjoy the content, but she wanted to learn how to do what they do. And to do this, she decided to start going to some of the cons like VidCon, BufferFest, BookCon, and Comic-Con. There she met up with her YouTube and internet friends from all over the world. She met the YouTube stars she followed and learned about the industry and how to make it not just a dream but a real future. These cons would take her all over to like New York, California, and Toronto. We got to get on this. Yeah. Sarah now had a large pool of friends from all over the world that she kept up with through video chats, online messaging, and phone calls. Wow. Her friend Nikki Daryl from New Zealand said this about Sarah. She radiated positivity and was the biggest encourager. She had a way of bringing joy into any situation. She was incredibly kind and sweet to me, a person on the opposite side of the world that she never met in person. She was instantly friends with every person she met. Aww. After Sarah graduated from high school, she continued to live at home and attended Brookdale Community College, where she took classes in television production and art. She worked during the summer as a beach badge checker. Oh, everybody run from her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> run away! And this was in Bradley Beach, which you had mentioned, Holly. Mm -hmm. And she saved her money. Her father was now dating a woman named Christine. Luckily, the this relationship was a pretty good one. Christine had lost her mother at an early age, too, so Sarah and her seemed to really understand each other. Oh. Sarah also thought that she was really good for her dad. Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah. You don't run into that a lot. Yeah. In the month leading up to her disappearance, Sarah attended one of those cons in Toronto. Cool. While she fell in love with the city and immediately began planning her move there. Oh, you know? that's the Canada money. That's the Canada there money. There it is. Okay. Yeah. When she returned home, she told everyone who would listen about her plan. She was like, I loved it there. It was so great. Canada we, is I got to go. I got to get out of here. I want to go to Canada too. Yeah, I know. When Sarah told her father, he urged her not to make a drastic decision just yet. He really wanted her to wait another year. In the meantime, she could work to save up money. He wanted her to finish college, so they discussed looking at ways to transfer or to do a study abroad program. One of their art teachers was willing to help with the situation, too. This seemed pretty reasonable. Um, Sarah was itching to get out of Neptune City to see the world and start her life. But studying abroad in Canada is really funny to me. I know. Because when I think of studying abroad, it's like, I went to London. I <laughs> like I studied abroad for, for college. I went to Canada for a mm -hmm. year. <laughs> I just think it's funny. I know, I know. I know for us, I guess. Toronto is one of those cool cities, though. I'd love and there's to so see many it. people that come from all over the world that live there. We just need it's more like a new, It's there. like a New York there. It's just so, yeah. Nice. According to Sarah's aunt, Linda Stightly, Aunt Linda. Oh, love it, Aunt Linda. Sarah talked about Canada to anyone who would listen. Linda was aware of her plans to move. She agreed with her father that waiting a year and coming up with solid plans was the right move. Uh, Linda, to me, sounds like, like a, another mom too. Just yeah. the way that she, like the information that she knows and the way that Sarah seems to talk to her. She's just very honest and she can trust her with a lot of stuff. Got it. 
So Linda was concerned with her mother, Sarah's grandmother, the 96-year-old Lillian Stern. Linda wanted to make a plan to bring Lillian down to Florida where she uh, could live with her to continue to care for her when Sarah left, which led me to believe that Sarah maybe did a lot more taking care of her grandmother. Yeah. Too, you know, well, so that was also 96. one reason. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she was – so the father, Michael Stern, had said that his mother was staying with his sister in uh, Neptune City at the time. Okay. So like in Belmar, she was staying with his sister over there. And so I don't know if that's just because they were traveling around. Okay. And so maybe maybe the grandmother stays at her house sometimes. I don't know. I'm not sure. But either way, she's just really close to her. Uh, she also says Sarah was planning to go to bartending school so that she could work as a bartender at night and focus on her art during the day. So Sarah just had, like, a ton of plans. She was, like, yeah. trying to, you know, she had a future ahead of her. Sound like somebody who's going to throw themselves off a bridge. Mm-mm. So after her trip to Toronto, Sarah visited her family in Florida over the Thanksgiving holiday and enjoyed some time in Disney. She's just like traveling all over the place. Yeah, man. When she returned from her trip, her father picked her up from the airport, and the next day, he and Christine headed down to Disney for a little vacation on their own. So they only got like, so she was in Toronto, she was home for a little bit, then went down to Florida for a while for Thanksgiving, and then she came home, and her father immediately left. So like... They probably didn't see each other that much. Probably not. And home would have been pretty barren if this is right after Thanksgiving. Yeah. There's like nobody around. Right. As the search for Sarah at the bridge was continuing, so now we're just going to go back to the case. That was about Sarah. The police were back in Sarah's neighborhood trying to find out, trying to find anyone with any more information. Sarah's friends, Liam and Preston, were sitting out on the porch when police approached, urging them to give up any information. The police assured them that they weren't looking to get anyone in trouble. They just wanted to make sure Sarah was safe. Of course. Liam confirmed for the police that he and Sarah had left a bin of things with Carly at the Draper house, and then he and Sarah went to lunch together. In the days that followed the investigation, Liam went into the station to make official statements. While at the station, Liam also told police officers that Sarah had been looking to get out and that she had been fighting with her dad. Oh, no. This wasn't the only time the officers had heard Sarah was fighting with her dad. Carly Draper also confessed that when Sarah came by her house the day to drop off the bin, she said she was moving to Canada and that she had lost respect for her father. Carly responded with, well, who hasn't? (laughs) (laughs) Carly's awesome. You can see her in like a ton of the interviews and just like she like loved this girl. But I love that answer. I know. She's like, well, who hasn't? And that's her thing. She was like, yeah, she said she like, we were just talking about like a bunch of things and she just, you know, the, you know, we brought up her dad and she was like, I just like lost respect for him. And she was just like, like I fight with my parents all the time. It didn't seem aggressive or, or sad. It just seemed like, meh. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever. I'll do what I want. (laughs) So, um, I had a really hard time looking up why, uh, Sarah could have been fighting with her dad because this is like one of those things that sticks in this case. Yeah. And it was really hard. I didn't find it in any other podcast that I listened to, Dateline, ABC, nothing. I finally was looking for something completely different and found this response in an article. And it came from, um, it came from, I guess, the trial because we're going to get to a trial. Guys. Okay. But this is basically what happened. <laughs> so they were... They were fighting um, a little bit. Okay. And it had to do, it did, 
I guess like their fight may have started after she came back from Canada. Um, and it, But it wasn't about her moving to Canada, anything like that. It was because it was the end of 2016 and they were fighting about the election. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> so, which also makes way more sense to me why she would say, I lost a lot of respect for my yeah. dad. Because, again, he doesn't go into too, Michael doesn't go into too much detail about oh, this. No, is like, he on, But he might be. And so, and based on what I know of Sarah so far, I would think that she's probably like a Bernie. Not Trumpy. Yeah. <laughs> she probably liked Bernie and at least voted for Biden, I would think. Oh, no. And so she might have just gotten real mad. And, you know, 2016 was tense for all of us. So <laughs> oh, <laughs> it, no. was, it was really tense for all of us. So, you know, she could have been feeling like, I don't want to, we're just not on the same page right now. Yeah. And that that was what was happening. But now it also makes more sense why they were probably fighting about something like that. But also she, like, loves her dad. And that was, you know. That was a hard time for she anybody. She might have just needed space from him versus, like, needing to, like, get away from him. Oh, you know? Hillary lost, man. That was yeah. a Oh, bad yeah, that's right. That was 2016. Yeah. So sorry. So she was probably Bernie or Hillary. I'm sure as, like, a young girl, too, she was – I don't know. I mean, I'm just uh, yeah. making speculations, but he did say that it, it had to do with um, the election. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. That tracks. Yeah. So Michael and Christine arrived home to a full house around 7 p.m. on Saturday, December 3rd. So they drove that straight 16 hours. They're finally home. Wow. At this time, the dive crews were done for the day. It was too dark for them to keep searching. And there wasn't much new news yet. By Sunday morning, the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office was running the missing persons investigation. Brian Ricewad was leading the investigation. The day before, they had gotten a ton of interviews and were now trying to piece together Sarah's whole day. They were also able to retrieve surveillance footage from a house across the street from Sarah's that faced her home. They were able to see her vehicle leave multiple times throughout the day, and they did see Liam go in and out of her house. So... What they were able to piece together with this footage and other footage from places she visited was that she around, it was like sometime between like one and two, she carried a bin across the street to the Draper's house. After that, she and Liam went to lunch at Taco Bell. The security footage puts them there at 2.18 p.m. Later, she stopped at a bank in Bradley Beach with Liam a little before 3 p.m., when the police checked with the bank tellers who worked that day, one of the branch managers, who was an old friend of the family, had known Sarah since she was born, says he remembers Sarah waving hello to him and he blew her a kiss, waved back, and said, I love you as she left. Oh. <laughs> and that's just like how oh. close <laughs> she would, that's again, just a small town, I you know? know. That's a killer. At the bank, Sarah withdrew some money. Um, after the bank, she and Liam went back to the house, and that was the last place investigators could track her. So this is one of those things, too, that uh, Liam – so they did see – they did see somebody in the car with Sarah. All Liam has mentioned to the police at this point, though, is that they just – he went to get food with her, and then he went to work. He leaves out this whole part about the bank. Yeah. So, what was in the bin that was dropped off at the Drapers? Yeah, why are you just giving a bin to your neighbors? Like, can you just take this incriminating shit? What is that? Unfortunately, nothing really. 
Why did she do it then? That's so weird. There was just a bunch of miscellaneous items. There were Halloween decorations, some coins from her grandparents, a bunch of stuff that you would just like stick in the back of your closet. Why would her neighbors need her junk? Well, so she had asked Robin if she could drop off some things and... Part of it was, well, actually her Aunt Linda mentions, like, I think she was starting to pack up things before she was going to move to Canada. But again, nobody felt like she was moving, like, that day. That's so weird. But she, but now this is weird, though, because, like, why is she packing up some of her stuff and, like, leaving it there so suddenly? Yeah. Why does she have to do it today? And why is it just, like, a few non-important things? It feels weird. And she's doing it when her dad's gone, you know? So Mm. they're concerned. Like, is she trying to start to make a move here. Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely weird. So even though the bin made no sense to anybody. No, it doesn't. The detective spoke with Carly again, who had some more information that led them back to the bank. Okay. Carly said that when Sarah and Liam came by the house, Sarah was in a really good, she was in very good spirits. Sarah had found a shoebox filled with $20,000 cash at her family's home in Avon-by-the-Sea. Whoa! Yeah. She found twenty thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. I would shit myself if I found twenty thousand dollars. Also, in your family's home, like that's not your money. Yeah. She also told Carly about how she was going to move to Canada. Carly was excited for her, but again, did not think that she meant like this day. She just was like, not "I have this money. Now. I can make this move. Like, here's a box of some stuff. I'm getting like shit out of the house." Okay. Wow. Um, and this was also probably when she brought up, like, what's your dad have to say about it? And she was just like, we're not on the same page right now. <laughs> $20,000 is considerable. Mm-hmm. I would be like, I'm sorry, what? You found right. $20,000? Yeah. You just found it? So she said um, she told Carly not to say anything. I think that she <laughs> did also tell Carly, though, that um, she thinks that it was money left from her mom to her. That's a very convenient explanation Mm -hmm. of finding money. I think my mom meant for me to have this. Right. Okay. (laughs) So this is all Carly knows at this point. Okay. Right. Fair enough. So, again, Sarah told her not to tell anybody, but then Carly told the police. Well, yeah. Okay. That's (laughs) So the detectives got a warrant to search her safety deposit box, at which point they found $25,200 in the safety deposit box. Whew. Apparently, Sarah had also withdrawn. So that day she was at the bank and yeah, yeah. took out money. So they realized that she was withdrawing and not depositing. Um, she took out about 7000 the day of her disappearance. Oh. The detective said that the money was in really poor condition and would sometimes, like, deteriorate in your hands. So it was, like, super old money old that she money. found. Old money. Got it. Probably from, like, the 80s, like, that old. Super old. Because it was also really, right. I am from the 80s, and I'm yeah, crumbling 20, before your but eyes. it's 2016. Yeah. <laughs> you guys better validate it. Yeah. <laughs> and also the bills were that, like, were older, too. Like, that's not, As you don't I. see these. Yeah. <laughs> Upon further investigation, the detectives found that Sarah's mother had squirreled away money before her death. Okay. They thought maybe she had hid it in the shoebox because one day Sarah would inherit the house and have a nice little cash surprise. But Sarah ended up, (laughs) I know. so weird. This is so weird. But Sarah ended up finding it about six months before her disappearance while at the house looking through some things. Michael Stern had no idea about any of this money. Oh, my God. She never told her dad. He only found out after um, they started investigating. That's so strange to me. Yeah. And again, it's only because Carly, like, mentioned something about this. That's – I'm sorry. That's a very shady yeah. thing that occurred. 
Michael didn't know, but he wasn't surprised that his wife did this. He said that she was a quote unquote saver, but I think he's probably meaning like she's like a hoarder too. <laughs> she's a money hoarder. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not that bad. Yeah. He just wished that, you know, maybe she had told him before all of this because the money was in super poor condition by the time Sarah found it. Like, he could have had it in the bank for her, set it's up like, some sort of trust fund. It's like, something. I saved my money in a can in the yard. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. don't do that anymore. And I don't know how Sarah just assumed that it was for her. Because right. I don't remember that there was a note. And then I don't know if, like, because she does talk to her aunt about this, her Aunt Linda. And... I feel like maybe Linda might have known. Okay, because I would have been like, I have to tell my father this might be his money. Yeah, I feel like she called her aunt soon after. All right. So it would seem that if Sarah did want to leave, she did have the means now. Yeah. But if you remember from earlier, upon initial investigation of Sarah's house, her license, all her cash, all her credit cards, her passport, everything was left at the house. Right, right, right. She would need those to get out of the country. If she was really trying to plan to move to Canada. Yes, she would. And though she did withdraw some money, why wouldn't she have taken all of it? Why did she just take like 7000 or was there more money somewhere else? This girl has so much money just like laying around. It's like all over the place. This told detectives that Sarah didn't probably did not leave. Uh, She would have needed her passport to get to Canada. And no one believed that she would leave without her dog, Buddy. That was like a big thing. They were like, she wouldn't leave him. And that was also a thing that investigators were soon very quickly to find out. Everyone was like, she never left that dog in the crate. I don't know why he was even in his crate. And when they talked to her dad while he was driving up, they were like, we found, you know, like, Buddy was in the crate, though. He seemed okay. And he was like, why was he in the crate? Did you put him in there? He's like, no, that's how we found him. Uh, Michael also says in interviews that the only time they ever put Buddy in the crate, like especially at this point, was if there was just a ton of people coming in and out of the house because he would just run out. I had a dog like that. I get it. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, uh, yeah, that was basically it. It was just if there was a ton of people in the house, but they would never leave him in the crate if they were to leave the house. Okay. And Sarah took him with her a lot too. On December 4th, the police put out an award for $5,000 with any solid information on Sarah's whereabouts, but they got nothing credible. There was just nothing. A week after her disappearance, Sarah's family put together a search party and hundreds of people showed up, walking the beaches, streets, parks, rivers, in hopes of finding anything. Love a small town. Everybody's like, I don't know her, but I'm coming, or like, I know her very well. A ton of Sarah's schoolmates showed up for a search party, including including Liam, who told reporters that Sarah was pretty strong and hopefully they would find something today. You're getting this, you know, like I'm, I'm pushing this hard. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, the search was fruitless. Besides searching locally, police were also reaching out to Sarah's friends in London and Australia and anyone in her online communities hoping that they knew something. Sarah just had friends all over. Her yeah. dad would say, like, he, she'd be up. Sarah was someone that t- typically was home at least by midnight, and she would just be home. Sometimes she'd go to bed, wake up, like, really early in the morning to talk to her friends in all the other countries. She was Aww. just, like, doing things all day, but Plus, she was like an home. online person, you probably leave informational breadcrumbs if you're going to go somewhere or do something. Yeah, so it, would, it would have to be somewhere. Mm-hmm. Somebody would know. But, yeah, so— this search wasn't just local. It, like, expanded, like, nation worldwide, basically. I remember this. Yeah. I remember – well, also, we're in New Jersey, so yeah. we would have known. But I remember 
um, when she was missing and when people were mm-hmm. looking for her. Some of the YouTubers she followed, like Grace Helbig, were putting out the word uh, for Sarah's disappearance. Grace it, is also from New Jersey. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the other YouTubers, too, were doing that. They were Aww. like, this girl, I just met her at the, like, in Toronto. Aww. She's, you know, this is happening. Or she's, like, really part of our community. And everybody, it was it was all over the place. Aww. Detectives were still considering the secret stash of money that Sarah got. They wanted to know who else knew about it. Yeah. Apparently, Sarah's Aunt Linda knew, so I mentioned that. She had been the one to tell Sarah that she needed to put that money in a safety deposit. Yeah. She, uh, and not to leave it in a box under her bed. No. <laughs> Linda also told detectives that she was furious when she found out that Sarah had told some of her friends about this money, including her best friend Liam. And also, apparently, she had found, like, it, it could have been, like, fifty dollars to $100,000 that she had found at this point. <sighs> This is so, wild. Why do you, ha- like, hide a treasure hunt in your house? I know. So I did have a hard time finding the exact amount of money that Sarah found, and this is why. Um, she had spent quite a bit of it before she even put it into savings, uh, which I think she had also several different accounts that it was in. Maybe I would say at least two accounts this money is in, and then some is just, like, on her person, some – Income got spent. <laughs> this is so weird and shady. I know. So the one account had a little over twenty five thousand, as I said, and that was after she had withdrawn that seven thousand dollars. Her aunt Linda said that she had put fifty two hundred in another account. Then I'm sure she had some on hand, maybe stashed in her room. And again, according to Linda, she had used some of the money for her trip to Toronto. And on Black Friday for Christmas gifts that she bought for her grandmother, which was a flat screen TV. That's not a little Christmas gift either. She also bought herself a hovercraft that she was uh, that was on order, and she planned to use it as transportation in Canada. She also had dropped two thousand dollars on her dog Buddy's skin tag removal surgery not long before her disappearance. <laughs> I can't. I know. That's a, that's spendy. That's a lot. Yeah, so she she has money, but she's also, like, doing things, again, that, like— Buddy's skin tags had to go. They had to go. Had to go. They had to go. Um, and But, I mean, she has that one piece that she wanted to take, that hovercraft that she wanted to take. What to, exactly is a hovercraft? I don't know. I was imagining it was, like—like like they said hovercraft. Like a boat? No, I was thinking, like, like almost one of those—because um, she wanted to use it as, like, transportation. So it's I don't know— It's a boat. Look it up. Oh, is that? I'm looking at it. It's a boat with a fan in the back. Oh. Blows you along. Why did she want to get that for Canada? Coastal Canada? Weird. I I don't know why I was thinking of something like something like a street. Like like a Segway type situation? Something like that. That's what I was like uh, thinking. I mean, a hovercraft is... Yeah. That's because a hoverboard is like one of those little. Yeah, that's probably why. My kids have them. So I don't know if there was like an error there. And she, this is Linda saying it, and this was when she was like on trial. So maybe she's just like. I don't know, shit. but a hovercraft <laughs> is a boat. So yeah. if she bought a boat, that's like not cheap. Wild. It is why wild. Would, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she could use it in her hometown. She lived in a coastal yeah. town. You could use it there. But like, why are you like, I'm going to buy this boat for Canada? And then bring it to Canada. <laughs> to, to Canada? I guess perhaps you could hover from from New Jersey to Canada, could you? I mean, it's up the coast. 
right? No, I don't think that. I don't think she was planning to use it to get between the places. Listen, I, I think she just wanted to take it to Canada and use it there. That's like a wild thing to do. If it really, if we really are know. talking about a- this any boat. of our Canadian listeners, maybe they're like, we all have we hovercraft everywhere. <laughs> What's wrong with you both? Yeah, I don't know. I read it. I wrote it down. I I I <laughs> totally get that, but I'm looking at it right now, like what? Huh? Okay. But all of this, again, is to say that Sarah is clearly planning to, like, be around. Yeah. So they don't think that, especially if she spent money on a hovercraft, I don't know <laughs> that she's going to leave without it. I don't know. I don't. That's an investment. They're not, they don't appear to be inexpensive. Yeah. So several friends and family members knew about Sarah's money, but her father didn't. And this big secret could have also created some tension between them. So maybe there still is some reason, you know, some other reasons that they're not getting along right now. Yeah. Regardless of this new information, also just the fact that she didn't like trust to say something to her dad. Did you find something? Some people hovercraft over the snow. Oh. Because it's like a boat with the bottom is like um, inflated, like the fan pushes it along, it like hovers above the surface. So some people use it on the snow. I looked up Hovercraft Canada. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So yeah, that doesn't not make sense. Right. But she is definitely a 19-year-old with some cash. Yeah. And she (laughs) wants to go to Toronto, which is not a barren, snowy wasteland. Yeah. But I'm glad we solved that mystery. Cool. Regardless of this new information, investigators still weren't coming up with any solid leads. Liam and Preston were brought in a few more times to see if they could remember anything else. Because, again, when there is nothing for them to go on, most of the time investigators just have to start at the beginning and get the timelines down. But they just weren't really learning anything new. After about a month or so, the media on the case was dwindling. The detectives were almost certain that Sarah didn't leave on her own. Um, they weren't sure if it was something more sinister, though. Like, if she, they were starting to think, well, she maybe she was abduct- abducted if she didn't Yeah. Jump. Because they also just weren't getting the vibe that she jumped herself. Well, she's worth all this money. She's got a hovercraft lying around. Mm-hmm. Somebody might have abducted her. All the while, Michael Stern desperately hoped that his daughter would just come home. Two months went by with no credible leads until the police got a call from the father of 19-year-old Anthony Curry, who had some really interesting information. Oh, a new player. Anthony Curry was a classmate of Sarah's who moved to Brooklyn, New York, after graduation to pursue a career in making movies. That's adorable. I know. His passion was horror films. Um, and I believe that he had he had done, like, some directing and acting in horror films. And, like, directing is probably, like, his, like, personal indie film type of thing. But I think he did do some, like, acting okay. as well. Like, little tiny things. He was friends with Liam and Preston. And Liam, who was also a fan of horror, would sometimes come up with story ideas to share with Anthony in hopes of it making its way to film. And he was – Liam, I would say, was probably a bit of, like, an aspiring – he wanted to go on this path. Okay. Anthony's father was friends with the detective and told him about an eerie conversation his son had with Liam before (gasps) Sarah's disappearance. The detective brought Anthony and his father in for questioning. Anthony said on Thanksgiving evening, before he was headed back to Brooklyn, Liam told him about a plan to rob Sarah of her money, strangle her to death, and then throw her body over the bridge to make it look like a suicide. Oh, that's what happened. Weird, right? That's like weird that he would just say that. Yeah. Like, this is like a funny joke I'm making. Mm-hmm. What if I just did that? Yeah. And like he's just telling his friends, so this is what I'm going to do. 
What? You know, he has a twin brother that looks just like him having to walk around with that face on. So this wasn't so weird for Anthony to get a story like this from Liam. It wasn't? Liam was always coming up with crazy storylines and telling Anthony in case that they would make a good plot for a movie. Anthony, I guess however this was told to him, Anthony felt like he's just telling me another, this is like a crazy idea he has. Okay. So Anthony went back to Brooklyn, not really giving it any other thought. And again, like it's, it's, is super unclear. I mean, it was so long before too. Yeah. Like if Anthony just didn't get a super weird vibe from it, he's just like, Liam's kind of weird. And he always says like crazy stories. So I don't know how Liam presents stories to him. If it's just like this specific, like, yeah. Chad from English classes, blah, blah, blah. I'm probably going to cut his head off and throw it in my backyard. Yeah. Would that make a good movie? Like, that's weird. I don't it's know. It's very weird, but also, like you like you said before, your brain makes connections. Yeah. Your brain's never going to be like, oh, yeah, my friend murdered mm. somebody. Right. And then I'm, like, not sure if he was also, like, if if Anthony was thinking that he was bringing up Sarah as, like, she could be, like, a possible actress. And so, like, Sarah, sure. this is what I'll do. I don't, I don't know. But either way, Anthony wasn't too concerned about it. He was like, whatever. Liam just says shit. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't concerned until he saw on social media that Sarah was missing. And then when he got a Snapchat message from Liam a few days later that read, have the police spoken to you? Oh, no. Anthony started to believe Liam may have actually had something to do with it. Snapchat and teens. hmm So obviously he waited kind of a long time, though, to tell yeah. the police. Yeah. So this was pretty big news because Liam – you know, as you've seen me talk about him already, he's yeah. been part of this story this entire time. He was supposedly Sarah's best friend. Now, again, I don't know, as I research this more and more, it does sound like they were definitely friends. I don't know if they were best friends, but it almost seems as though Liam is maybe, he was trying to hang out with her more and more at this point to make it look like he was better friends with yeah, her. Like, I think he money, was, so. yeah. But he he had he was around her. She trusted him, you know. Right. Michael had also known Liam and his family since they were six. And Liam had been so cooperative during the investigation, though it wasn't unfathomable. There had been some tells that the detectives felt were worth noting. Some things that they, like, as they kept bringing him in for questioning, sure. they were like, mm, let's just, like, keep this on the side, but we aren't finding anything. One of which was that he didn't, say anything about going to the bank and then they found out that he He was at the bank. Mm -hmm. Liam was also quick to tell police that Sarah had been fighting with her dad and that she wanted to move to Canada and that she was suicidal. And all of that was without like much probing. Oh. Then during questioning at the police station, Liam asked just out of nowhere, if Sarah had jumped off the bridge, what's the probability that her body is in the ocean at this point? Oh, no. And it wasn't. This is where the detectives were like, it's just weird that he's, like, asking that kind of thing and not more like, what can I do to help? Like, Well, yeah, that's going? a weird way to phrase yeah. it. Be like, so um, what do you think is the likelihood they're not going to find that body? Mm-hmm. And there were other, like, weird things like that. The police, like, more and more as they were looking back over these videotapes, and, again, all of these you can see, too. Um, but they were they were seeing that Liam was definitely a little too calm in these interviews, yeah. um, which happens sometimes. People have different responses to stuff. Yeah, we've discussed that a lot. Mm-hmm. You can't really judge by exactly how a person responds. But it was interesting where Liam would um, – he would come up with information for them that they needed – 
and then almost like strategically leave out other information and then also start to, he would like little bits of probing just to see like what they knew, what information they had. Chris Watts moment. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, because Anthony came forward with this information, the police were able to like look back through these videos and really see like what was going on and maybe if Liam might be lying to them or just leaving something out. Because at this point, Liam hasn't really lied to them at all. No. He's telling them everything. He's just not telling, maybe he's just not telling them. And people forget. (laughs) I mean, like, like, immaculate truth-telling, or or not truth-telling, like immaculate storytelling is more of an indication of lying than leaving stuff out. Right, exactly. And any interrogator would know that. Exactly. Um, So the police really harped on Liam to explain to them, like, why he left out the bank. Um, Also, if he knew about the money, and then Liam did end up telling them, like, well, I did know about the money. I was with Sarah when she found it. Um, I think there was like fifty to a hundred thousand. I'm not really sure. We didn't fully count it, um, but she, you know, believe she told me later that like it was her mom that left it for her, um, and that that was really it. That's like, and uh, and so she kind of wanted to use that money to then like go to Canada, but I don't know that she left to go. I don't know anything like that. Okay. So that's like what he said. Uh huh. So now that they got this information from Anthony and now they're looking deeper into Liam, this case has now shifted from a missing person's case to a homicide. Yeah. So they need to get Liam to confess, like fully confess to actually killing Sarah. Anthony volunteered to go undercover to meet up with Liam to get him to spill the beans. Yes, Anthony. I know. Oh, I like this him. This is great. He was probably just like, I'm so sorry I waited like two months to tell you this, but I will do whatever you need me now to I'll do. Now I'll just be really helpful. Yeah. Anthony called Liam while being recorded to see if he could meet up. This is like a job. This literally, this job is like meant for somebody that's some acting experience because he does. He's incredible. (laughs) Nice. He told Liam that he dropped his camera in a bucket of blood while on shoot and it was going to cost him a lot to fix it. (laughs) He was broke and hoped Liam could spot him some cash from that girl's money. (gasps) Oh. Liam got real squirrely on the phone and said he couldn't talk about it right now. Anthony asked if they could meet up in person then, and Liam agreed to meet him in a couple days. I love him. I know. <laughs> He's so good. He yeah. has his whole backstory. I know. I need your extra money because mm-hmm. of my damaged camera from a bucket of blood. Yeah. So investigators wired up Anthony's car with cameras and audio. So you can see this entire thing. I again. love it. The day Anthony was driving to meet Liam, he was playing music, singing along to it, and, like, smoking a cigarette. You can see this all in the car. He was trying to get, like, real relaxed, trying to play it cool, get in, like, the zone of, like, I'm just going to see my friend, and we're going to talk about some murder, and it's going to be really uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) So surveillance units were tailing Anthony's car, and they're all on alert if anything were to go down. So they get to Bradley Beach. Liam meets him there, and Liam gets into Anthony's car. They caught up a bit. I think he was just like, yo, money, like when he got in or something. I don't know. It was real stupid, whatever he said. But immediately, Liam reaches over and starts patting Anthony down. And he's just like, I'm so sorry, dude. Like, I just got to do this. I got to check you. And the police. Maybe stop being so fucking weird. Yeah. And so he's like, I got to check you for a wire. You need to understand. So the police, like, in their cars are just like, oh, fuck. <gasps> oh, shit. <laughs> but I feel like this is not the brightest crayon in the box right now. Well, luckily, Liam didn't find anything on Anthony because he 
wasn't the one that was wired. His car was. Yes. And Liam didn't think to check the car, which I don't know if he would have found anything. But Liam says, you got to understand why I'm checking you. I can't be too careful. I have the FBI in my hair. Anthony asked why. And Liam just first starts on and, and just immediately starts talking about money. And he says, the worst part is I thought that I was walking out with 50 grand to 100 grand in my pocket. She had one safe and she took money out and she only had 10 grand. And this money, I don't know if it was burnt or something, but all the money was in terrible quality. I don't know if I can even put it in the bank. So just like immediately because, and Liam said, he's just like, remember, like I already told you that I was going to kill this girl. So I'm just like going to go straight in. (laughs) Just talk about this cash. Keep up. Keep up. Okay. So Anthony cuts in and he was like, why can't you put it in the bank? Because it looks sketchy. Liam says, yes, it's also, it also would obviously be Sarah's money since the investigators know what quality they are looking for. They discuss the money a bit more, and Liam looks so let down that he didn't get even a quarter of the cash that the two found at her mom's house. Ugh. So again, he also confirms that he was like with her when she found the money, and she and he knows all about this. Mm-mm. Anthony asked where the money is. Liam said he barely spent any of it because it's such bad shape, and he currently has it hidden. He said it was in the house, but he wasn't sure that he could trust Preston. So now the police know, oh, Preston, the kid that we also have been interrogating, (sighs) knows something. Uh Uh-huh. So then Anthony asked if Preston was involved, and Liam said, yes, but the killing of Sarah was his plan, not Preston's. Well, make sure you get credit for everything you've done. He also said part of his plan was to be interrogated by the cops and not look guilty. He was like, I planned for all that. I've been like, I write horror movies. I know. Yeah. He's like, I showed up for like her search party. I spoke to reporters. Ugh, gross. Then he says he and Preston, and he just like goes right into it. Then he says he and Preston threw her body off the bridge and it never showed up. He was just like, you just never showed up. Isn't that great? Yeah, it wouldn't. Liam and Anthony then speculated on where the body was at this point. Like, poor Anthony is, like, sitting in there. He's, like, got to play it cool. He's like, oh, yeah, like, where do you think the body would be, man? He's probably just like, Sarah. I know. That's, I mean, good for him, though. He, like, committed. He did. He, like, he did so good in this. Liam goes on to describe the day. So here we go. We're going to, like, walk it through. Give me it. He says they went to the bank where she took some money out. They were at home and counting it up. Then she goes to walk out the front door, but he grabs her and chokes her out while holding her. What he says is, like, up in the air, and like, her feet are dangling. So I don't know if he had her against the wall or some I shit. I feel like he's also being very dramatic because yeah. that is so hard to do. You have to have, like, brute strength. Yeah. Um, he also, like, I feel like maybe he, she was walking out and he, like, choked her up against the wall. Yeah. I don't, like, if her feet were dangling... He's holding her body weight with just his hands that he is also strangling her with. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's that. Maybe he is that strong. I don't, I'm looking at yeah. him right now. And she's mm-hmm. like a light person too at the time, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like she probably That's also a very a cinematic bit. thing to say. It is, right? Um, he, and he does mention at this point that Sarah did pee herself. After he choked oh. her out, she was on the ground and looked like she was having a seizure. So he stuffed her mouth with, the, with a shirt so she, that she didn't throw up. And then he plugged her nose, and that was that. He told Anthony that he was timing the whole thing on his phone, and it took him 30 minutes, which was longer than he thought. Yeah, because that shit's not what it looks like in movies. So then Liam needed to leave and get to work. (laughs) 
This took longer than expected. I've got to go to work. He dragged her body into the bathroom. When Liam got to work, he realized that he didn't have his phone on him. He called Preston from his work phone to tell him that he had done it and needed his help. He had Preston go to the house and look for his phone. Liam said that he left work a few times to go check him check for his phone himself. So the police did know this part. Okay. Um, he did say that. He was just like, I couldn't find my phone that day. And because um, I don't think he had it on the first day that the police like talked to him. Because I think they were like, do you have your phone like to check any messages? And he was like, I actually can't find it. I was with Sarah. Then I got to work and realized it was like not on me. And I went back and forth a couple times, but I couldn't find it anywhere. So again, timing her murder and yeah. I left it somewhere. Mm-hmm. But again, all of this is on footage. The can- the police can see it. So they're just like, well, he's telling the truth. This is what he was doing, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So Liam tells Preston that he must have lost it as he crawled out of the house when he was heading to work because he does tell Anthony that his phone was in the driveway, but that he didn't find it that day. It was actually Sarah's cousin who ended up finding it. And But just no one thought that it was weird because he was so honest with the cops about yeah. all his timing. And he was with her, so. Mm-hmm. Continuing on, Liam was aware of the security cameras across the street, so he was being very careful of when he was on screen. So that's why he was, like, crawling out to try to, like, leave at a certain yep. point. When Liam got done work, he went back to Sarah's with Preston. Uh, Preston had moved her body to the back un- to the backyard under a bush. They then carried her to her car where Liam buckled her into the passenger seat. Then he backed out of the driveway the same way he always, like, watched Sarah do it so that mm. on the camera it would look like yeah. her. Preston followed Liam to the bridge. Meanwhile, they were talking to each other on walkie-talkies that they had bought because they didn't want all of this uh, on the phone. Yep. Well, this was the other thing, too. I didn't mention this part. So he mentions Liam tells Anthony that he thought the dog was going to be, like, the hardest part and all of that. But he said, like, her dog, Buddy, he thought he'd be, like, barking or, like, wanting to attack him and blah, blah, blah. But he, but he just said, like, no, Buddy just, like, laid there, didn't say anything. It's probably because he knew who well, he was. Well, he's familiar. Yeah, he's not, like, a stranger coming yeah. in the house. So then they get to the bridge. The plan was for Liam to toss her over the bridge, and then they would quickly get into Preston's car, and they would drive off. But picking her up wasn't as easy as he thought, and as he was holding her, he saw some headlights coming up the bridge. So he threw her headfirst back into the car through the window, and her feet are now just, like, hanging out of the car. Liam needed Preston's help, and when it was all clear, there were no more cars again, and he was just like, thank God it could have been, like, a police officer. And there is a police station nearby. Like, Anthony points that out. He's like, yeah, the police station's right around. He's like, I know, man. This is crazy. Uh, He and Preston picked her up and threw her over the bridge. And then they left in Preston's car. So Liam says that Anthony is now the only other person that knows besides Preston. He tells Anthony not to tell anyone, especially Preston. Like, he doesn't want Preston to know that Anthony even knows about this. mm -hmm. Because... Uh, he doesn't want Preston to get real nervous thinking like, oh, now we got to kill Anthony because he's the only other person that knows. God. Uh, So besides all of that, I took out some quotes because there's a couple of quotes that Liam says in this uh, confession that are extremely douchey. And he looks extremely douchey. He's a very punchable face. Yeah. So here are a couple of things that he said. Here's the thing about heist. There's so much you can't account for. You don't know until it happens. Heist? That's not a heist. I know. Fuck out of here. I didn't get a lot of money, but I had enough money to live comfortably in my house and throw parties and shit. 
Gross. Yeah. I don't feel any different and I don't think about it. You always think you're going to try these new things and you're going to change. It just doesn't do anything. Not when you're a psychopath. I hate that one. And then this last one. It's your life. You might as well make it one. What are you going to just live some boring ass life? Yeah. Just and like not about, kill a single oh. person. I'm so mad. He was like so mad that he was just like, I did all this for like a thrill and I didn't feel anything. Ugh. Ugh. Get your little pig nose out of here with your punchable ass face. Mm-hmm. And all right. So that's it really. Like the, well, that's that with like Liam, yeah. right? So they, he just like confessed. The detectives. Well, he had not much choice, right? you know. The detectives, well, no. So, I mean, he just confessed to Anthony. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So the detectives and the prosecution felt like they had everything that they needed to send Liam and possibly Preston yeah. to, to jail. They still didn't have Sarah's body or any other evidence, but this confession tape was hopefully enough. So I mean, I would hope so. Right? So I'm sure now you're all wondering what kind of bad seeds Liam and Preston were and why such a nice girl like Sarah was even friends with these horrible people. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. These young men weren't bad kids. Liam was a college sophomore studying psychology and worked at Brennan's Steakhouse. He had previously worked with Sarah during the summer on the beaches, and he had been her friend since first grade. He was never in trouble with the police. He wasn't a bad student or a troublemaker, and he was a good worker by all accounts. Nobody had any problems with him. Fucking bored kids. You don't have anything to do. Preston was in college for economic and political science. Uh, he also worked part-time around his class schedule and had been friends with Sarah since high school and took her to prom. Also, no criminal record. There's just no reason. No. Nothing. Liam, Preston, and Liam's twin brother had recently moved into a house together, so they were also, like, pretty financially independent as well. If Liam and Preston are found guilty of killing Sarah, the whole community was going to be shocked and devastated. Well, yeah. But after this confession in Anthony's car, the detectives knew that they had their man. And now they had to tell Michael Stern that his daughter was murdered by her friend. Ugh. This news was obviously going to devastate him. Yeah. The police arrested Liam McAtasty and Preston Taylor. Both originally pleaded not guilty to murder and six other charges. The trial date was set, and Liam and Preston were to be held in county jail until the trial. While awaiting trial, Michael Stern, family, and friends all gathered together to hold a celebration of life for Sarah. In summer of 2017, they rented out the Neptune Community Center, which you talked the about. The Community Center. I'm so glad that came up. And filled it with all of Sarah's art. Over oh. a thousand visitors came. It's really nice. I love that. They they said that they um there were three room three large rooms and all of Sarah's art just floor to ceiling was filling the whole place. Oh, that's so sweet. Friends, the game room, yeah, the TV room, and Sarah's art. Oh. Friends, teachers, and family all spoke about Sarah and the type of person that she was and how she will be missed. Mm-hmm. Almost two years later, so two years have now gone by, and mm. so. Liam and Preston have had to stay in jail this whole time. They couldn't get out. Yeah. Um, so now it's January 23rd, 2019, and the trial finally was underway. The prosecution knew that the defense was going to harp on the fact that there was still no body. Yeah, that's but hard. they weren't sure what else they had up their sleeves, so they needed more than just the video to convict Liam and Preston of murder. Murder without a body is like a difficult charge. Because mm-hmm. they were just like, all they have to do is be like, 
Look at the door. She can come in any minute now. Anytime. I hate that. But luckily, not long after they were arrested, Preston came through and he took a plea deal. And yep. he decided to just let it all out. Um, the state agreed to drop the felony murder charge when Preston had agreed to cooperate with authorities following his arrest in February 2017 and ultimately pleaded guilty to robbery, conspiracy to commit ro- robbery, desecrating human remains, conspiracy to desecrate human remains, and hindering apprehension. So he was still going to be charged with a bunch of stuff, but at least it wasn't murder. Yeah, because he agreed. I Yeah. So when Preston, well, okay, so one thing I looked up was that Preston was probably looking at, like, most of his life in prison. Yeah. Um, He might have been able to get parole, but he was going to look at most of his life. Uh, But now he was looking at maybe as less than 10 years at this point. So that's probably why he was like, I will take it. That's a good plea deal. And also something that I learned, which I may have known this, and you might know this, is that um, even though that they, so the state gave him a plea deal and Preston accepted it, it doesn't mean that the judge will agree to it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's just a suggestion Mm -hmm. that the, like, legal teams make. The judge is your ultimate word on that, so. So when Preston took the stand, he told the whole story. He said Liam had been planning this for six months. (gasps) Six months! So almost immediately after... Liam found the money with Sarah at her family's second home, his wheels started spinning. Liam thought that it was 100000 and told Preston, that's the kind of money worth killing for. Preston says... A non-incriminating I thing know. to say. Preston said that Liam's initial plan was just to rob Sarah, but over time the conversations progressed to killing her to obtain the money. The crime was intricately planned. They bought walkie-talkies so that they didn't need to use their cell phones, and they wanted to set it up to look like a suicide. Liam knew that Sarah wanted to take more trips out to Canada to plan her move and convinced her to take out money just to do that. So that's why they went there. What a juvenile way to, like, do a burner phone situation. They didn't even buy burner phones. They're like, let's get walkie-talkies. I know. Ugh. I bet they had, like, code names for each other and shit. So there was another, um, I I don't know if it was her Aunt Linda or somebody else that went on um, the stand. They mentioned that I think Liam maybe was even trying, I think he convinced Sarah to go to the bank to get the money out as like, we can go to Canada together. So I don't know, like it wasn't that they were ever, no one, yeah, but like no one ever said anything like that they, they were never like romantically involved with each other. But, right, she went to prom with the other one, right? Yeah, and they yeah. weren't really in, intimate. They're just friends. Yeah, they were just mm-hmm. friends. But I don't know, like, that would also makes a little bit more sense to me as to maybe why she took out so much. Like, they were good friends, and he was just like, let's just, like, go to Canada. Why not? She's like, like I love Canada. Yeah, Great idea. Sure. So I don't know if that was the case, but either way, he did – he did kind of push her to being like, you should you should continue to keep going to Canada. Why don't you take out some money? And that was how he was going to get her to have it on her hand, right, so he could take it from her. <sighs> so with her parents away in Florida, he thought that it was like the perfect time to enact this plan. Preston, got, yeah, Preston then got a message from Liam that day saying that he was with Sarah at the bank, and today was the day. Preston knew the plan was afoot. Late that afternoon on December 2nd, 2016, Liam strangled Sarah and then left to go to work. 
There was surveillance footage of Liam leaving the house with a backpack with de- that detective said was filled with Sarah's money. There is a footage of Liam arriving at work. Liam left shortly after arriving to meet up with Preston and tell him what happened and that he lost his phone. Liam gave Preston instructions to go to Sarah's house to clean up any messes and to get Sarah's body ready to move. Liam went back to work and finished out his shift. So again, he's like a waiter, so he's just like working a full shift, just being a normal waiter. Can you imagine just like working your shift after that? No. They did. You can actually see him um, at his work. You can see footage of it. And he is like a little frantic at the beginning, and then he just like figures it out. He's just fine after he gets through it. So meanwhile, Preston jumped Sarah's fence in the backyard and entered through the back door because they are aware of the security footage, like the security camera. That's like how close this town is. They just like know that there's this camera over there. He found Sarah's body in the bathroom and dragged her out of the back and hid her body under a bush and then tried looking for Liam's phone but never found it. There's footage of Preston. So actually, you can also see footage of Preston walking the detectives through. So after he did confess, he was like, I will walk you through the entire day that I had and what we did. So you can see the entire thing. This is Um, 2016, right? mm -hmm. Why didn't they just do a find my phone situation? I don't know. They were too busy. They had walkie-talkies. They couldn't be bothered. (laughs) So, um, and this film is is played in court, so all the jury can actually see them, like, Mm, what Preston is showing them what they did. And Michael Stern has to sit through all of this. Terrible. He also has to sit through um, Liam's full confession tape, which at that point he had only heard a couple pieces of. He didn't have to watch the whole thing. He was like, it was so rough. I also imagine it's so callous, him talking about Mm -hmm. it and just, like, not caring. So Preston wraps up the story the same way Liam told it to Anthony. He added that after they threw the body off the bridge, or Sarah's body off the bridge, they headed home, lit a cigarette, and counted the money, finding out that they got less than $10,000. And also that the money was just, like, in horrible condition. <laughs> it was just falling apart. It was. It was just, like, disintegrating in their hands. <laughs> so every every time All they picked it up, so they were weird. like, I can't. now it's, like, $9,000. Like oh, that. no. So the money was now hidden in two small safes buried in separate spots, one in the woods in a nearby park and the other 20 miles away at an abandoned army base. I don't know what, like. What is her life? Well, no, this was Liam. Liam did oh, this. Oh, he put he, that. Okay. Yeah. Everybody's hiding money all over the place, though. Detectives found the safes, and they were locked. But guess who had the keys? Liam did on his keychain. On his keychain. I'm going to put half this money on an army base, but I'm going to keep the keys in my pocket. Okay. The prosecution told the jury that Liam's plan to kill Sarah for money was just an excuse to kill somebody. And honestly, I kind of believe this. In the tape, he basically told Anthony that he was hoping that he was going to be, like, getting a thrill. Yeah. All right, so the defense had a lot of work to do at this point, and they do have some shit up their sleeves, first of which is trying to make Preston an unreliable source. Apparently, a few days before Preston spilled the beans to the police, he had told detectives that he was sexually assaulted as a child by a family member. This was proven to be a lie. Why he told this to them, I don't know. So during cross-examination, they brought this up and said, and, you know, to which case he was just like, yeah, I sometimes lie. Oh, but no. he took an oath to tell the truth today. But I don't, so they were just like, he's not, he like lies about shit. We can't trust him. What if he's lying about he this? Walked, he rolled up to the cops and was like, well, you guys, I was abused sexually as a child for no real reason. Yeah. And it wasn't true. And it had no bearing on the case. Yeah. <sighs> so they were like, he's not really reliable. We don't, you know. I mean, 
He's not, but yeah. okay. Next, the defense tried to push the friction between Sarah and her father. Her aunt Linda did confirm that their relationship was rocky and that Sarah was recently, was secretly, sorry, packing up items so her father wasn't aware of her move to Canada. So it's like weird when like Linda like says stuff too. But Linda also made it clear that she didn't think Sarah was actually going to run away. Okay. It was just that she did have this money and she could do it sooner yeah. type of thing. And that she knew that she, that Sarah did love her dad very much. Besides Linda, Carly said that Sarah had lost respect for her father. But mm-hmm. when Michael Stern was questioned, that's when he said that they were fighting over the 2016 election. And that was yeah. the issue. Next, the defense had an eyewitness from a man who claims he saw Sarah Stern on December oh. 3rd. Okay, who is this? So this, again, was the day after she went missing. This was huge. Craig Hetzler Sr. claims he saw Sarah walking down the street at 5.15 a.m. She was wearing a leather bomber jacket with a fluffy collar and high-heeled boots. They caught eyes, and she quickly turned away and walked on. Craig was taking his son to work, the same route in the same time every day that he takes his son to, or uses to take his son to work. And he remembers saying to his son, this is an awfully good-looking girl to be walking on the street at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> oh, okay. I know. But that's how he's like, this is how I remember right, it. Because right. I remember, like, seeing this cute girl. Yeah. Then they were driving over the Route 35 bridge and saw a car parked on the side halfway across the bridge. He remembers sat- saying that, that that was a bad spot for the car to be. Just like a dad would. Just like, that's a bad spot for the car Don't to park be. park your car there. Yeah. And then a few days later, at 7-Eleven, he saw Sarah's photo up on the wall, and she looked just like the woman he saw walking around in the early morning hours of December 3rd. So he was like, that's her. I did. I saw her. Weird. Okay. So this would have been very interesting, except that the time at which the man says he saw the car would have been kind of impossible because the car had already been towed two hours earlier. Oh, Okay. So though Craig Hetzler, he he believes to this day, he was just like, I saw that car there. I saw Sarah. She's alive. She's walking around somewhere. And whoever is saying that they towed that car earlier is lying or oh. they need to talk to somebody else. Guy, come on. Give it up. Yeah. So that was their big thing. All right. And it just kind of shattered. Yeah. <laughs> so finally, Liam's attorney took the video footage of Liam allegedly confessing to Sarah's murder to, in Anthony's car. Allegedly. He just, like, took this mm-hmm. and he went head on with it. He claims that Liam believed he was pitching a horror movie plot mm-hmm. to his friend. He made up horror movie plots all the time. He wanted to live the life Anthony was living and look up, and he looked up to him. And therefore, Preston was also lying, just trying to get out of whatever trouble he was actually in. Like, who knows, like, what Preston had to do with this. He just thought that he was just, like, running some lines. Right. Okay. That's, mm -hmm. And this is also, his mom believes this, too. Liam's mom. I'm not going to blame a mom. I don't want to, but I just, that's, like, because some people are like, oh, like, how does her mom feel about this? Or his mom feel about this? It's, she's, she believes her son. Well, you know, that's a, that's a big self-preservation thing, too. That's okay. kid. Yeah. I totally can't blame her. So the defense really tried to paint a picture that Liam is being set up because he didn't kill Sarah since she is clearly alive and probably living in Canada, and she'll be back one day. Yeah, okay. Ultimately, after the jury saw the video footage of Liam confessing in the car to Anthony, no one believed Liam was just pitching a story or even auditioning for some role. Everyone was floored by the things Liam said and how he said them. And in the end, after a five-week trial, the jury found Liam McAtasney guilty. 
and he was charged to life without parole for first-degree murder, conspiracy, desecrating human remains, tampering with evidence, robbery, and several other charges. Yikes. The judge honored Preston's plea deal but gave him 18 years in prison with no <gasps> chance of parole. So he has to serve wow. the whole thing. But he'll be like 40 when he gets out, yeah. I think. I mean, 40. that's not... That's not old. That's like yeah, the prime of has, your life. He still has a life. I do hope that he gets like some rehab because he was. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, what they find is that he just was one of those people that was around the wrong person. I don't know. Like he was easily convinced. Yeah. I don't know. But hope, hopefully, he feels like shit for this. Yeah. And does some sort of rehab. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I, oh. He was just, I mean, he didn't, he, he just did. Terrible things. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So, at Liam's sentencing, Michael Stern spoke and said, I was devastated and numb from shock the day I learned from detectives Sarah was murdered. I've had horrific dreams and nightmares. The horrid act of what happened to her body haunts me every day. I will never be able to hug Sarah again. And that's it. That's the case. Oh, that's terrible. I know. But they, in... Later interviews with her father, it does seem as though, like, her and her friends, even though they are just, like, devastated, they they are actually, they do feel, like, closure in the sense of, like, our daughter Good. died. That's yeah. what happened. I mean. And she was killed by this guy. Like, we, like, they fully believe. the worst thing. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I think, I think they solved the case. And I think without Anthony, this would have just been a cold case. Agree. So, wow, that was mm-hmm. crazy. Good story. Thank you. You're welcome. <sighs> I hope it wasn't confusing for anybody. <laughs> I don't think so. I think you told it well. Okay. Uh, I, oh God, I like, I have always said, and I will stick by it, that I don't like children being locked up forever. But one, these are not children. No. 19 is not all the way their brain. Yeah. It's not. So like you said, the one guy that got 18 years pressed in, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Maybe he will see that he what he did was stupid and wrong, and he'll think I was impulsive and young, and mm-hmm. I have therapy, and I can be one day a productive member of society. Yeah. But, oh, it's hard to reconcile with the other guy. That's He just planned it for so a long. A really long time. That's that's the thing. And it was um the same with Tyler Hadley. This is very similar. Yeah. has, like, very similar elements. It's the premeditation of that. Yeah. Where you're like, no, this wasn't just a moment. Where yeah. you like forgot yourself, you did intend to do something awful and planned it out right. in detail. I think that makes all the difference. And then I'm just like bothered. I guess what bothers me about Preston's role is that he just, how was he not, con- I felt like he never said he was concerned and he was scared. I felt like he never said that. <sighs> I don't know. We don't know what this guy is. Yeah. He's, could be anything. But yeah, so that's that's it. All right. What do we want to toast? Um Anthony and his phenomenal performance skills and his reconnaissance. Yes. Cheers to Anthony. Yes. Um, and then obviously a big cheers to Sarah. Yes, and her family, like her dad and Aunt Linda yes. and stuff. Mm-hmm. And to, to Buddy. Them. And to Buddy. Oh, stuck mm-hmm. in his crate. I know. And if we trusted an undeserving friend with a big secret, we We would be dead. dead. 
Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Buddy's skin tags had to go. They had to go. They had to go. They had to go.